Last week, we were in Jeremiah chapter 29, and in that chapter, we read a letter from Jeremiah to the Judean exiles in Babylon. It was a letter giving instructions to them about how to live in exile. Jeremiah opposed the message of the false prophets who had been telling the exiles they should keep their bags packed because they'd be coming home very, very soon. In contrast to that, Jeremiah's message was that the exile would last, in fact, for 70 years. And in the meantime, the exiles were to work and pray for good in their situation. Instead of keeping their bags packed, they were to get involved in day-to-day life, building, planting, and raising families. Jeremiah's letter named two of the false prophets, men who were among those exiles in Babylon. And the end of chapter 29 includes another, much shorter letter from Jeremiah, which names another false prophet. So the main concern of chapter 29 is to dismantle the message of the false prophets. They were preaching a false peace to the people. Before the Babylonians overran Jerusalem, the message of those prophets had been you will not serve the king of Babylon. Jeremiah is crazy. He's just a gloomy, negative man, and you don't need to worry about him because all will be well. Then when the Babylonians did overrun Jerusalem, the false prophets had a new message for the people. They said, within two years, the Lord will bring all the treasures and all of the people back to Jerusalem. Both those messages were messages of false peace. But those prophets did have one thing right. The Lord is a God who works to bring peace. He is the God of peace. That's how the Bible describes him. What those prophets refused to accept, though, was that true peace only comes when evil and sin have been dealt with. True peace comes on the other side of judgment. And in terms of the book of Jeremiah, chapters 1 to 29 have mainly been concerned to show the certainty of judgment. God is not the kind of God who is careless about evil. He's the kind of God who deals with it. And chapters 23 to 29 Those chapters were an extended smackdown of those false prophets who suggested otherwise. Those chapters opposed the false message of peace without judgment. But now we come to another turning point in the book. Chapters 30 to 33 are often referred to as the book of consolation. It's called the book of consolation Because as we'll see, Jeremiah is specifically told by the Lord not just to preach the contents of these chapters, but to write them down in a book. No doubt that's so that this material can be taken to the exiles because Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. Those exiles can't hear him preach these messages, but they can read the book. Consolation means comfort. 
It means encouragement. And this book of consolation brings comfort and encouragement by focusing on the future God has for his people. It's a future of salvation and peace. This book talks about restoration. It describes a new situation and a new relationship with God on the other side of judgment. And this morning we're going to look at the first part of the book of Consolation, where God sets out his peace plan. We've seen how the false prophets preached a peace that ignored the problem of sin. But God's peace plan is good news because it provides a solution to sin. It promises sin will be dealt with. We're going to read from chapter 30, verse 1, through to the first verse of chapter 31. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 791. And in the larger print Bibles, 1225. Jeremiah chapter 30. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob. But he will be saved out of it. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God. And David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So do not be afraid, Jacob my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable. Your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause. No remedy for your sore. No healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel because your guilt is so great 
and your sins so many? Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. But all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. Because you are called an outcast, Zion, for whom no one cares, this is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. Their children will be as in days of old and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people and I will be your God. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is God's word. And it begins with a crucial truth. Only God can provide salvation. The future that is promised here is a future only God can deliver. Verse 3 talks about deliverance from captivity. It talks about restoration. But verse 5 describes a very, very different situation. Look at it again. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. This is describing Judah's current situation as Jeremiah writes. As the book of Consolation is being written, Judah is in the middle of a three-stage battering by the Babylonian armies. Three times they came, and each time they took a bit more, and they demolished a bit more. Judah is in a state of fear and terror. There is no peace in the place, and there's no savior either. Look at verse 6. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. Even in our gender-bending society, we still understand, I think, that man cannot give birth. And that was equally obvious, if not more obvious, to the ancient Israelites. But, God says, since that's the case, 
Why does every strong man in Judah look like he's in the pains of labor? And the point is, when the people of Judah looked at those who might be expected to save them in their difficulties, their strong men, when they looked at those strong men, they were as fearful and terrified as everybody else. The judgment of God delivered by the Babylonians was a terrifying thing. That's one aspect of this picture. All the potential heroes are as deathly pale as the rest of the people. But there is another aspect to this. In verse 3, God has mentioned restoration for his people. He's talked about a bright future. And verse 6 is making the point there is no one in Judah who can bring that future about. None of them can give birth to that bright future. The very best of the people, the strongest of them, they have no more chance of achieving that future than a man does trying to give birth to a child. He can push and he can grunt all he wants. It's not going to happen. There's not even a baby in there to come out if he could push it out. There's no savior in Judah. And so left to herself, there is nothing but pain ahead for Judah. Pain with nothing good to show at the end of it. When verse 7 says, that day will be awful, it means the day Jerusalem is finally and fully destroyed. And the last blow of God's judgment is struck. No other day will be like that day because it will be the climax of fear and terror for Judah. Judah is referred to there in verse 7 by the name of her founding father, Jacob. It's a way of speaking about the whole nation. The people of Judah will face an awful day. And yet, at the end of verse 7, we're told they will be saved out of it. We already know that Savior is not going to be one of the strong men of Judah. They're all helpless. The Savior will be God himself. The next verse makes that clear. But before we go on to that, the point of these verses holds true for all people at all times. Wherever you live, whenever you live, there is only one Savior. No one but God can see you safely through the fears of life and the terrors of judgment. The best of your friends, the wisest of the politicians, none of them can deliver you from death. None of them can lead you to true, all-encompassing peace. Shalom for your body and your mind. No one else but God can bring salvation and shalom to human relationships, to human community. Every other potential Savior, well, they can grunt and they can groan on your behalf. They can push with all their might on your behalf. They can sweat and exert themselves for you, but they cannot deliver 
the salvation you need. Recently, I've been seeing posters all over the place saying, technology will save us. Maybe you've seen those posters. And we can all agree, of course, technology does some great things, but it cannot take away our fears. In fact, as technology advances, our fears seem to be growing. Only God can save us. If you've been putting your hope in any other Savior, then learn to see that particular Savior as the Bible presents them to us here. Learn to see them as a man trying to give birth. They cannot give you what you long for. It's time to start looking to the only one who can be your Savior. God's peace plan begins with a reminder of who it is that brings peace. It's God himself. Then in verses 8 to 11, we're told, God sets us free to serve him. Look at verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, in other words, this is the day of salvation we're talking about now, mentioned at the end of verse 7. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. A yoke was a harness for animals. It was a wooden crossbar that went across their shoulders and was attached with leather straps. It made the animals go where they didn't necessarily want to go. And when humans in the Bible or in any ancient text are described as being under the yoke, it meant they were under the power of a harsh ruler. In this case, it's talking about Judah being under Babylonian rule. And God says, I will break that yoke. I'll set you free. At the end of verse 8, God says, no longer will foreigners enslave the people of Judah. Now, earlier in this book, in chapter 28, the false prophet Hananiah had said the same thing. He'd spoken about a yoke being broken. But the key difference is, Hananiah thought God's judgment on Judah would never come. Or if it did, it would just be a minor thing. But here, the freedom God is talking about is deliverance out of the terrors we heard about in verse 5. This is deliverance on the other side of judgment. And this deliverance is for a purpose. In Hebrew, the word enslave at the end of verse 8 is the same word that's translated serve at the beginning of verse 9. So God's promise is, I will set you free from a harsh master, Babylon, so you can serve a new master, me. God does not deliver men and women so they can serve themselves. He doesn't deliver men and women so they can fall under the sway of some other master who turns out to be just as bad as the old one. There's a song by The Who that says, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. 
How many people have had that experience? Thinking they've got away from some oppressive taskmaster only to find they've just swapped one bad situation for another. Adam and Eve find that out in the Garden of Eden. To their bitter regret, they thought that serving God was restrictive. So they decided to be their own masters. But they find themselves in slavery to their own sinful desires that they couldn't master. And they find themselves enslaved to the devil's power. Human beings have been learning that painful lesson ever since. Maybe you're learning it right now as you try to be your own boss and find yourself getting deeper and deeper into slavery of some kind. Whether it's an addiction that's mastering you or an ambition that's driving you relentlessly, giving you no rest. Those are harsh masters to serve. But serving God is different. With God, it's not a case of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. There's an old prayer that says, God's service is perfect freedom. He delivers people so they can fulfill the purpose and enjoy the destiny they were created for. Living to serve their loving, wise creator. That is true freedom. We saw earlier, God is the only true savior. Here we're told he's the only master worth serving. And as another singer from a few decades ago said, you've got to serve somebody. That's biblical. The question is not, will you and I serve? The question is, who will we serve? Real freedom is found in serving the loving Lord who made us. And look how verse 9 explains, serving the Lord means serving the Lord's anointed king. They will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, by this time in history, David has been dead for 400 years. This is not a promise David is going to be resurrected. But God had promised David that one of his descendants would rule forever. That's what this is about. It was mentioned briefly back in chapter 23. God said, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Meaning, this future king will come from what appears to be the dead stump of David's family. David's family had gone rotten. But God promised a king would come who would be like a fresh branch sprouting out of all those past failures and disappointments. And we notice then, when the Israelites did eventually return to Jerusalem, decades after Jeremiah died, they didn't have a king. Later on, the Romans would choose their own kings and impose them on Israel. But those kings were not descendants of David. 
The arrival of God's chosen king came with the arrival of Jesus Christ. The first page of the New Testament traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to David through Jesus' human father, Joseph. So as we read here in Jeremiah 30 about God's peace plan, we realize however much these words might have been partially fulfilled when the Babylon fell and the people came back from exile, their true fulfillment is bound up with Jesus Christ. He is the only king where we can truly say to serve him is to serve God. Jesus is the only one who can say to men and women who are enslaved to harsh masters, take my yoke upon you. Serve me and you will find rest for your souls. Peace. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That call from Jesus comes in the book of Matthew. And it's for you and me today. Come to him with all of your disappointments, even your addictions, and he will set you free to serve him, whose service is perfect freedom. In verses 10 and 11, God repeats his promise that he will save Israel. He will bring them peace and security on the other side of punishment and exile. Then God describes another aspect of his peace plan. We've heard about salvation. We've heard about deliverance. And now we hear about healing. God says he will heal our unhealable wound. Look at verse 12. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable. Your injury beyond healing. There's no one to plead your cause. No remedy for your sore. No healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. Countries like Egypt, who Judah turned to for help against Babylon. They've forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel. Because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. In verse 12, the word translated wound occurred back in Jeremiah's clay jar sermon, back in chapter 19. That sermon was a previous turning point in the book. God finally announced to Judah and Jerusalem, I'm going to smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. And as Jeremiah said those words in his sermon, he smashed the actual clay jar he'd been holding. That pot, shattered in a thousand pieces, was a picture of how Judah would be broken never to be repaired. And here in chapter 30, verse 12, the same word is used to describe Judah again. It's translated here not as smashed, but as wounded. But notice it's just as bad as being smashed in a thousand pieces. 
because this wound is incurable. God says that over and over in these verses. It is impossible for Judah to be healed. Why? Because the guilt of sin is incurable. No one can argue away the guilt of sin. No lawyer can get you out of it. No medicine can neutralize it. No doctor can remove it. There is no cure for the guilt of sin. And God says, here's why there's no cure. Because you're guilty before me. And I don't ignore guilt. I punish it. I must punish it. Look in the middle of verse 14. God says, I have struck you. And at the end of verse 15, I have done these things to you. The wound of sin is incurable because the one who punishes sin is God. And no one can outmaneuver God. No one can hoodwink him. And yet having gone here to great lengths to say that Judah's wound is incurable, look down to what God says in verse 17. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. God says your wound is incurable, but I will heal you. On the face of it, that seems to be a contradiction. We've just seen how seriously God takes sin. We know he cannot and he will not ignore it. Well, later this passage will give us a clue as to how God will resolve that problem. How he will both forgive sin and punish it. But notice another aspect of God's peace plan. God restores our dignity through one of our own. Look at the middle of verse 17. I think that's a new start. Because you are called an outcast, Zion, for whom no one cares, this is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents. I will have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins, and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. Their children will be as in days of old and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Judah is in a ruined state. The exiles are in a foreign place in Babylon. And all of that has made these people the object of scorn. They appear to be friendless outcasts. But God promises rebuilding. He promises there will be singing again. There will be children again. There will be prosperity and honor again. And verse 21, all these promises 
of restored dignity. They all center on a ruler who will deliver all this to the people. He will be one of their own. He won't be a Babylonian oppressor. He will be a fellow Israelite. It's the same leader who was spoken about earlier in the passage, the king descended from David. So again, however much this picture might be partially fulfilled when some of the exiles walk back home from Babylon to Jerusalem. These exiles did not come home to find a king who was one of their own. It didn't happen. The true fulfillment of these promises waits for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Born 500 years after the exile in Babylon was over. It is only with his arrival, his advent, that humanity can be restored to its full dignity. Dignity that was lost when humanity fell into sin. It's only with the arrival of Jesus that verse 22 will become reality. God and his people perfectly united. And it's not only Israelites who can say Jesus is one of our own. The most marvelous thing about Jesus is that he's God come in human flesh. He came for all of us if we're human. The New Testament says when we bow to Jesus as our Lord and God, we find he's also our brother. We've become co-heirs with Christ. What greater dignity and honor could there be for us as human beings? As a society, we often try to create dignity for ourselves. Desperately, a lot of the time. We try to have impressive profiles of ourselves online. We try to feed off likes and positive comments promotions in our career, whatever grains of honor we can find for ourselves to give a little bit of dignity to us. But the Bible says God has so much more for us than that. As he speaks to these people of Judah, people who are outcasts in their society, people nobody cares about, God points into the future and he says, I care. And I will show it to you in the greatest way possible. My son will come down to be one of you. A human just like you. And if you'll take him as your savior and king, he will make you more and more like him. That means being drawn deeper and deeper into my love and my care. What greater dignity could there be for any of us? than to be a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the early Christian theologians was a man called Athanasius. And he summed up the message of the New Testament like this. He said, Christ became what we are, that we might become what he is. 
Christ became what we are that we might become what he is. Or if we use the language of Jeremiah 30, we might say, God the Son came as one of our own that we might become his own, members of God's family. So if you're looking for meaning, if you're looking for purpose, if you feel you're an outcast that nobody really cares about, come to Jesus. He'll make you part of the greatest family there is. And he'll lead you to eternal honor in the presence of his Father. There are three verses left in this section. Jeremiah's original book had no chapter or verse breaks. And in this case, I think verse 1 of chapter 31 belongs with the end of chapter 30. So after promising in verse 22, you will be my people and I will be your God, verse 23 says very abruptly, see, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. At first, verses 23 and 24 seem completely out of place, but they're not. You'll notice they're an explanation of what God is going to do to bring about this peace he's been talking about. This Storm of the Lord's wrath is actually part of God's peace plan. It's on the other side of this storm that God will claim his people and be their God. In these verses, God is telling us true peace comes on the other side of wrath. But you'll also notice God does not say who this storm of wrath is going to fall on. It's not going to be his people. This whole passage has been about his plans to save his people from wrath. And the obvious answer might seem to be, well, the storm of wrath is going to fall on the Babylonians. And there is support for that earlier in the passage. Back in verse 11, God said, I will completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you. And in verse 16, God says, All who devour you, Israel, will be devoured. Those who plunder you will be plundered. So yes, at one level, this storm of wrath must be pointing to God's vengeance on the enemies of his people. No doubt that's how the people of Judah would have understood it when they heard these words. But at the very end of the chapter, God hints that actually there's more to this. After describing this storm of wrath in verses 23 and 24, verse 24 ends with the words, in days to come, you will understand this. That implies there's more than just the obvious going on here. The exiles didn't have to wait till the future to understand that God was going to destroy Babylon. 
God has spelled it out clearly. After 70 years, Babylon's time is up. But here, God is saying that somehow his great peace plan, which will bring salvation and set his people free to serve him, which will heal their unhealable wound and restore their dignity, somehow that will come on the other side of a storm of wrath. A storm of wrath they could not conceive of or understand at this point. Only in days to come, God says, will you fully understand the depths of this prophecy, the full purposes of my heart. And the New Testament tells us this storm of wrath that brings peace is a storm of wrath that fell on God's Son. He came from heaven to earth as one of our own. And he came to take the wrath that should have swirled down on us for our great guilt and our many sins. That's what we deserved. As Jesus hung on the cross, though, all the fierce anger of God was poured out on him. He died in our place in that storm of wrath. He was wounded to death so our incurable wound could be healed. He took the full force of God's justice so you and I could escape justice. He died the most undignified death so we could be lifted to a place of eternal dignity in God's presence. Jesus was cut off from God so you and I could join the family of God. Jesus took the storm of heaven's wrath so you and I could have the prosperity and peace of heaven. That's what Advent is about. It's about peace with God, made possible at immeasurable cost to God himself. God came to pay for our peace with his own blood. So this Advent and beyond Advent, let's fix all of our hopes and all of our dreams on Jesus Christ. If you're looking for salvation and deliverance and healing and dignity, come to Jesus. You'll find all of that in him. Give your life to him and live for him. His service is perfect freedom. Let's bring our praise to him now as we sing, first of all, exult in the Savior's birth. And then our last song reminds us that because of Jesus, we are not alone. <clears throat>